Hello. And welcome to another episode of Saturday the 14th. Yay! This is Maggie. This is Maddie. And we are here to talk to you about a classic. Yeah, I think that one of the most memorable horror movies anyone is ever going to watch. I definitely think so. Today we're talking about um, legacy and adaptations and the... Probably most prolific horror writer alive today, Stephen King. Yeah, and we're going to talk about um, his version of The Shining and Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining. Yeah, because they are very different, apparently. I would say if you haven't read The Shining, you should read The Shining. A lot of people haven't, but they've seen the movie. Yeah, I have not read it. I want to, just time. It's big. Yeah, it's a long book. It sounds like an investment. It is. It goes quickly, though, because it's very interestingly written, and he has a very, like, an easy-to-read writing style. Yeah, that's true. Um, But it's still quite a lot. Maybe I'll read it on the beach over Christmas break. Ooh, you should do it. I'll let you borrow my copy. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're going to talk about The Shining, and this is one that I have a lot of strong opinions on. Um, I'm going to try very hard not to make this whole episode sound like it's me talking about why I don't like Stanley Kubrick. I think he's a great filmmaker and I think he made a great movie. And he did some really amazing things in this movie that hadn't been done before. And he took a lot of really interesting risks that paid off well for him. And I think that that sort of serves the general tone of the movie well. I think that he did an incredible job building the ambiance and the tension and the visuals that he chose are really, really strong. There's so many little features like you don't even necessarily notice, but you can just tell that something's off. Kind of like we watch Final Destination and they talked about how they made things just like a little off of scale so you couldn't tell you just could know that something's wrong but you wouldn't necessarily know what yeah but then the rest of the movie's also good yes as opposed to (laughs) final destination where the rest of the movie was horrible yeah um there are some really interesting details i didn't catch about the set dressing and stuff so i'm excited to talk talk about that too yeah um, so we're going to get into the normal type, normal kind of stuff that we talk about with these. Um, the Shining was made in 1980. Same year as Friday the 13th. Yeah, it was a good year for horror movies. It was. Very, um, I guess Friday the 13th was not really exploring new ground, um, but was kind of stabilizing the slasher genre, whereas this is a whole kind of new thing. Yeah. I it mean, is a haunted house type of It's an of adaptation. Thing. Yeah. So people, it was already a really popular book by the time this movie was made. Right. But it does, I mean, it has a different feeling from the book. Um, and I think it has a different feeling from a lot of horror at that point. It does. I mean, it takes place in, like, a snowy, desolate hotel, which you don't see as much. Like, I went through the... Um, the Universal Hollywood Horror Nights maze last year for The Shining. And it was weird because they had to really bump up the scare factor because it wasn't that scary because of the fact that... You know your dad is not really trying to murder you the whole time. (laughs) Well, there's that. Um, But I was thinking more like just walking through a hotel and not that much happens is not that scary. So, because like in a lot of times in the movie, not that much is actually happening. That's true. It's very slow. It's a lot of knowing that Jack's like mental state is going is what makes it scary more so than the actual visuals there aren't like jump scares and stuff right. like that. Yeah. Also I don't think they can have like a rotted naked woman in a Hollywood horror nights maze. Maybe Which, not. Yeah. Maybe not. So like for example, one of the rooms you walked through had the um all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy just like paste it all over the walls and stuff like that. Creepy. It was super creepy at times. And then you had to go through the maze at the end and different Jacks kept jumping out of you with an axe. Ah. That sounds like a lot of fun, actually. It was. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was released uh, in 1980, and it was directed, as I think probably most people know, by Stanley Kubrick, 
And it was also, the script was partially written by Kubrick. Yes. Along with Diane Johnson. Yeah, she has, I don't think she has any other real writing credits besides this, which is crazy. Well, I would say that if this wasn't super well received, that might be one of the reasons why. That's true. It did struggle a little bit at first. Um, Something that I think is hilarious about this movie. So it stars uh, Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers. Scatman. Scatman. Is a good name. It is. I don't think it's his given name. Probably not. (laughs) Uh, I think it's hilarious that Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance and Danny Lloyd plays Danny Torrance. Yeah, I noticed that. Especially since it's not one of those things where, like, in... um, Like The Office? uh, Yeah, or, like, um, Blair Witch, where they name the characters the same thing as the actors intentionally. Like, that's just a coincidence. Yeah, that's really funny. Right? I can kind of see maybe if, like, when... Um, Kubrick read the book. He was like, oh, Jack, and, like, thought of Jack Nicholson. That's possible. Like, maybe that was something. But Danny, I think they looked at, like, a ton of kids. Jack Nicholson was the only guy that they even considered for this part. Yeah, and Stephen King did not like that casting decision. No, he wanted Richard Dreyfuss, who I honestly do think would have been a really scary Jack in a different way. Yeah. He would have had more, like, of an everyman sort of the yeah. person you least expect type you of vibe. You don't look at Jack Nicholson and ever think that he is an everyman. No, you're like, wow, these people are in danger because they're there with Jack Nicholson. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, he seems crazy immediately. Whereas I think that um, Richard Dreyfus could have done something that was more like, oh, he's fine. Oh, no, he's not fine. Oh, no, everything's when very bad. When Jack Nicholson was a actor, like, in this time, so, like, 80s yeah. and such, or, or late 70s, was he ever, did he ever play, like, a normal character? Um, I, I know when he was older, he was in some rom-coms and stuff like that. And that's yeah. when he was like swaggy Jack Nicholson. Like. <laughs> I'm sure that he's played more normal characters at some point in time. I know that one of the reasons that Stephen King really didn't like him is because he had just been in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Which is also such a good book. Yeah, and he kind of thought that he was just going to bring... You know, people would look at him and be like, oh, that's that crazy dude from that movie. I mean, and then he was that crazy... Mo- or he was that yeah. crazy dude, just not from that movie. Right. He was a different, more over-the-top, super, super hammy, very intense yeah. performance. And he was also in Chinatown before. Oh, yeah. Chinatown out. is, I mean, I don't know if I would say that he's an everyman in that movie, but it's a very, it's a lot more subtle of a performance than this yeah. one is. Which, but still not, like, just a regular old dude. No, he's, like, yeah. No, he's not, like, just some family guy or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the budget for this one is a little bit higher uh, than some of the ones we've looked at, probably because of the enormous sets that they used. They and had to have huge sets. I mean, if they filmed the scene of, like, Shelley Duvall screaming as the door was ripped open multiple times, think about how many doors they had to go through. Yeah, I actually saw in the... So um, something that's really cool and that is actually on YouTube, um, while they were making this movie, Stanley Kubrick's daughter, Vivian, who was 18 at the time, made a documentary of the whole experience. And... You don't see a lot of things with, like, Kubrick in them in general. He was a little bit on the camera shy side. But she was able to get a bunch of footage of him because, like, it's that makes her sense. dad, yeah. you know. Um, and so they show this one scene where it's the scene where, at the end, Shelley Duvall is trying to run out of the hotel. And there's, like, all the snow. And they had to make fake snow, obviously. Yeah. So they have this big rig that's, like, pumping out snow. And they have the fans going to, like, blow it towards her. And she can't hear when they say go. So they, like, blow the take. Because she can't hear them and she doesn't know to run out. So they have to reset. And, like, every time you have to do something like that, that's a ton of money. And it's time and it's, you know, all the products that you're using. So they ended up with a pretty big budget. It ended up being $19 million. And it only made $44 million, which is not a very good return. It's, like, it's still, like, net positive. But, like, 
when you look at film production budgets, that does not include marketing. It does not include like right. distribution costs and all that jazz. Yeah. So really, the studios didn't make very much money on this movie. No, I think it's like usually double the budget for marketing and, and distribution and everything like that. So that's Which not would a be huge... 38, and then this made 44. So it broke even, but still. Yeah, but... I think, as we mentioned, I, th- I think one of the issues with this is that it was a really popular book already, and as we also mentioned, he made a lot of changes. Yeah. Which I think, I mean, I know, because I've read a lot of the reviews from when it came out, people were not that into it at first. Mm-hmm. Like, because if you go in, if you've seen, if you've read the book The Shining, this is actually what happened to me the first time that I saw the movie, I read the book in high school and I loved it, um, read it again for this episode, still love it, Um if you go in expecting that, you're going to be really, really disappointed because yeah. it's not that. But now I think at this point people have, like, heard more about the movie maybe than the I book. I think the movie's so probably more popular more, than the yeah. book at this point in time. I've read a lot of Stephen King. I actually have not read The Shining, though. It's good. I'm going to read it. I just read all the ones that are names that start with C. <laughs> so I read Cujo and Carrie and Christine. And yep, those three. <laughs> I read those three. I read a bunch of his novellas. Nice. Um, his novellas are really good and yeah. terrifying. He's oh, such a good writer. He really is. He's just so good. All right. So let's get into the summary a little bit here. Yeah. So the movie kicks off and you see a shot of a car. It's like a bird's eye view. And it's driving through these windy roads past these beautiful trees in Colorado. And it is set to Dies Irae, which is a classical piece that translates to the Day of Wrath. Yeah. So you can tell pretty quickly whoever's in this car is not going to have a good time. No. And it's... um. It's such a cool shot. The opening shot is iconic for a reason. It's uh, this helicopter shot over um, like a river that's next to this mountain road. And so it kind of goes right over the water and then brings you up to like next to the car. Actually very um, similar to the opening shots of Funny Games too. Yeah, that's true. And actually to the opening, um, at least the driving scenes in Get Out was very, very heavily influenced by this part. Well, there are a lot of references to the shining in get out yeah which we talk a lot more in depth about in our get out episode yeah there's it clearly inspired a lot of people oh definitely it was yeah super iconic um so you see jack torrance he arrives at the uh isolated overlook hotel super far up from town it's like 27 miles or something like yeah that and it's away. all this like steep mountain road that's like basically impassable in the winter is what they let him know and it's he's there to interview for a caretaker job yeah so he was previously a teacher but now he's going to be the caretaker for this hotel he's gonna bring his he wants to bring his family and stay there with him he's gonna use the time to write because he wants to write a book yeah and so they're like cool 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 everything seems to be going great uh the manager's name is Stuart ullman um tells them all about the history of the hotel, like that it was built on a Native American burial ground. Never a good idea. No. And why is that a trope? Like, why is that so commonly used? I don't know. Just like, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's just more of like, it could have been anywhere and it might not have been marked. Was, um, I mean, the Amityville Horror was already pretty popular at this point too. And that was also the history for that. That's true. That's a good point. Um, so they're like, he's like, okay, that's fine. Uh, he tells him about, like, the whole history, basically, since it was built in 1907, um, is mostly fine, and he's mostly really excited about it, but there's been some weird stuff that's happened in the past as well. In 1970, um, Delbert Grady, who was the caretaker at the time, was up there with his wife and his two daughters, and he basically lost it and murdered all of them. Not just murdered them, but, like, chopped them into bits and put them, like, piled their bodies in a room on the West Wing and then just, like... Oh, no, then he killed himself. Yeah. He put... Both barrels of a shotgun into his mouth is how they put it. It'd be weirder if he only put one, wouldn't it? 
It'd be difficult. The other one would just shoot, like, the outside of your face. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Jack is pretty into it. And he, not that part, but the hotel in general. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, a guy killed himself. Let's do it. Yeah. I don't know if it's because you see him in interview mode, like, when you first meet him. But there is never anything, like, sympathetic about Jack as a character. No, he's the worst. Because he's just, like, clearly putting on an interview front. Like, an, oh, yep, that's okay with me. If that mm-hmm. happened, and I can come here now. I thought it was really funny that when they're talking about it, and he's like, oh, it might be creepy for your wife. And he goes, oh, well, my wife is a bona fide horror movie fanatic or something like that which is not at any point reflected in the characterization and then never mentioned again <laughs> of, you never like see them watching any horror or anything no like that. not at all which i thought that they would because there's that whole horror people watch horror yeah trope but she watches something else at one point but i, I don't know she's what watching was. like cartoons with danny yeah or, or like a yeah like a tv movie or something like that um so that never comes up again no nope. but he gets the job and uh and it's also mentioned that even though this is like a really beautiful snowy area, um, the reason they don't stay open for skiing during the winter is because it's just too expensive to keep that road, that like 27 mile road open. Yeah. And so they kind of have to accept that they're going to be shut off from the rest of the world once they get up there. Basically, once it really starts to snow, like they might be able to come down for the first couple months, but then that's it. And then while Jack's at the interview, it cuts to his wife, who's played by Shelley Duvall, and mm-hmm. her name is Wendy. Yep. Winifred. Winifred. Um, but Wendy for short, and his son Danny. And they're, like, sitting at the table talking about it. And Danny mentions that he doesn't really want to go, but also he doesn't have any friends, so it's not like he's going to miss out on playing with friends, which is so sad. It is. Poor it's kid. It's really sad. I feel really bad for Danny, basically, for this entire movie and also for the entire book. He's just a really sad character. He is. Um, but he, later that later that day after they have their little lunch, Danny starts talking to himself in the mirror yeah so he has this little friend named tony and tony is you can tell when he's talking to tony because he wiggles his finger up and down and he makes this funny voice yeah like a little croaky voice um and so he's talking to tony and he's like well what's gonna happen when we get to the hotel tony and tony's like i don't know but i don't want to go yeah and he's like well why not and then tony shows him yeah, and he gets this premonition of these elevators that open up and just blood pours out. And then he sees these two girls uh, in the hallway. Just, and, like, standing, staring. Yeah, and he's all very, very freaked out. Um, he kind of sees the word red rum. Thing. Yeah. And he goes into a trance, and basically he falls. So the next thing you see is that this, this doctor is at their house, and she's come to check on uh, Danny and... Everything seems fine. They can't figure out anything that's wrong with him. And so she's talking to Wendy and she's like, well, you know, has anything bad ever happened to him or anything like that? And so Wendy kind of dances around telling her. Well, Danny also mentions his friend Tony to the doctor. And so the doctor is like, what's up with Tony? And she's like, oh, it's an imaginary friend. And doctor asks, well, how long has he had Tony? And she's like, oh, since about nursery school. And then she talks about when Jack came home drunk one night. And Danny, Danny had yeah. messed up all of his papers, so he grabbed him to take him away from the papers, but grabbed him too hard and ended up dislocating his shoulder. Yeah, and she says it in all this, like, well, you know, he didn't mean to, and it just he'd had a couple drinks, and you know how sometimes you don't know your strength, and it's, like, all very, like, making excuses for why and it happened. She talks about how, like, well, the good thing that came out of it is that he gave up drinking. Like, he hasn't had a single drink since. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, everything's fine now. Yeah. Um, and the doctor's like, okay <laughs> i don't like that and she's basically like you kind of probably should keep an eye on this but like it, it also is probably fine like it happens to kids and he will probably get over it but yeah. like if he doesn't you might need to worry about it later on so that's fine um 
So the family goes on up there, and it's closing day. Yeah, so the very last day that the hotel's open, everyone's heading out, and yeah. they get a tour from the nice chef. Yeah, from Mr. Halloran. Yep, Dick played Halloran. by Scatman Crothers. And so he gives a tour of the kitchen and all the supplies. And so they go through the pantry. They're shown, like, the giant freezer, which, which surprisingly isn't, like, used again. Like, No, the freezer is not really. No, but there's a lot of meat in there. Yeah. So yeah. Um, even though they're completely isolated, there's just a lot of food, and they'll be completely fine. Yeah. Like, that's not really a risk at all. Um, and so Danny meets up with them, and as they're talking, and as Halloran is talking, he turns his head, and he looks at Danny, and he thinks do you want to get some ice cream after this or something like that? And it's clear that they have a telepathic connection that neither of the parents are picking up on at all. Yeah. So, and it's funny because he does this while he's actually talking out loud to the mom still. Yeah. So it's kind of cool that he can talk twice. Yeah. Um, so they kind of, they hang out afterwards after the tour is done. And when uh, manager Ullman is showing the parents around the rest of the area and kind of like showing them to their quarters and all that stuff. And so they sit down and they have some ice cream and basically Halloran is like, listen, Everybody can, like, a lot of people in this world can, like, shine is what he calls it, which is, like, you know things or you can hear what people are saying. And he's talking about how his grandmother had it, too. Yeah, and they used to be able to have conversations just sitting there and not even opening their mouths. Mm -hmm. Um, And he tells Danny that Danny shines harder than anybody he's ever seen. And Danny talks about his imaginary friend, Tony, Mm -hmm. and that Tony shows him things. And when Tony shows him things, he goes into, like, a trance-like state. yeah. And Halloran's like, well, has Tony showed you anything around here? And he said that he has, but he can't really remember. But then Danny asks Halloran about room 237. And Halloran's like, just don't, just don't worry about it. Just don't go there. Just don't do it at all. (laughs) Yeah. um, And he talks about how the hotel has a shine to it in the same way that some people do. And so it has kind of memories that stick around. You'll see pictures in the same way you'll see pictures in a picture book, but that they're not real. Right. You You just look away and they'll be gone. Yeah. Yeah. And so Danny's like, well, that's scary, but okay. So um, family is living there and a month passes and Jack's writing is not doing so hot. No. So yeah, so it's not really going anywhere. He had this whole plan that he was going to like write the great American novel while he's up there and he doesn't, it doesn't really seem to be working out. No, he just spends most of his days with a ball, like throwing it against the room. He's like, because at some point when he's like, oh, we should go on a walk. It's going to be so nice out. And he's like, well, I have to go write. And then he goes and he sits and he throws a ball against the wall and does yeah. not do any writing whatsoever. Yeah. And he's like cutting himself off from his family. In a lot of these conversations, you seem like kind of be a dick to everyone. Basically the whole movie, he's kind of an asshole. He, yeah, he starts as an asshole. Yeah. He's not like a nice guy. Um, but Danny and Wendy are having a nice time, like going around the grounds and exploring some stuff. Yeah, they go into the hedge maze. Yeah, there's a whole hedge maze. Who the fuck has a hedge maze? It's easier to shoot than topiaries. Apparently. <laughs> at least topiaries that come to life. Yeah. But it's kind of cool because at the same time that they're in the hedge maze, Jack is in like the Colorado lounge staring at a model of the hedge maze. That is super cool, yeah. So it's like he's watching them or he's like figuring out where they're going to be or yeah. hunting them or something like that. And Halloran, our friend who's the cook, he goes down to Florida. Heck yeah, get the fuck out of there. Yeah, he honestly made the best decision out of everyone yeah. here. I don't know how he could have come back all the time if he has a shining and he his shining must be like nowhere near as strong as danny's but it's still stronger than like a lot of other people's well we really only see two shinings true but he does talk a lot about how like other people that he sees it's not very strong but like he can read people's like thoughts whereas some other people just like know when to do something for someone so yeah his is stronger than most danny's is the strongest i think he does get visions of stuff but it's a good job and i think it's probably worse in the winter because a lot of the stuff happened in the winter true that's true yeah 
So he's like, all right, guys, I'm out of here. I'll be back when shit's normal again. And they're like, okay, later. Yeah. So Wendy's, like, cooking something up in the kitchen, and there's a news report that talks about how there's going to be heavy snowfall, and actually also talks about a woman who's gone missing while going hunting with her husband. Yeah. So it's interesting because it's a... I don't know if it's because I've already seen this movie and I know that it's about a relationship that doesn't end up so good by the end. Yeah. And it's like, oh man, I wonder what happened between the woman and her husband who went hunting together right. if he like, like killed her too. Like if you get too. close to the Overlook, are you still in danger? That's like, what I was thinking. It was like, did the Overlook somehow, like if they went hunting in the woods near it, did it convince them to kill him or something right. like that? Yeah. It is really interesting. And so while she's doing that, we also see Danny who is riding his tricycle around the hotel. Yep. And he does this in a couple of different scenes, but he's just taking these corners and going around and around, and he's having a great time, and he's exploring the hotel, and it's a lot of fun. Um, just like in The Omen, there's a lot of riding yeah. a tricycle inside. Yeah. I actually did think of that, where he's riding around and getting up to mischief, and it's sort of almost weirdly tense just to watch him go around. Yeah. Um, I feel like anyone riding a tricycle indoors, not, not a good thing. Don't no, do it. Don't just means something bad's going to happen. Yeah. But, I mean, at the same time, it's cold out, so you might as well let him do something. Yeah. But Danny finds room 237, and he is curious. And the key's in the door, right? At this no. Um, he walks up to the door, and he tries to open it, but it's locked right now. And so he's like, I guess I'm not going to do this. And then he just keeps going. Smart move. Yeah. Correct move. Yeah, um, I think the better move would have just to never been to try to open that door. Yeah. Just listen to Mr. Halloran. Yeah. Halloran knows what he's talking about. So, um, Wendy now goes to tell Jack just about the fact that it's going to snow the next day. Oh, God, and he's the worst. Yeah. So, he's just, like, staring at her. He's like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do about that, Wendy? And And she's like, like, I don't know. I'm just telling you a fact you might want to know. I think she's, like, trying to bring him food. And he, like, throws a hissy fit about the fact that she interrupted him while he was writing. And he's like, if that door is shut, if you hear me typing in here, or even if you don't hear me typing in here, that means you don't come in here. Yeah. Like, God, it's your wife. Don't be an asshole. Seriously. And then it snows a ton. Yeah, it snows a lot. Like, at first, it has, like, day titles as to when these things are happening. At first, I thought it was the next day, and I was like, there's no way in hell it snowed that much the next no. day. Then I realized it was supposed to be, like, a couple days later. But it's just kept snowing. Like, it, yeah. they're just, they're snowed in. Like, there's nowhere that they but can But it go. is beautiful. But you just see Jack consistently, like, sitting at the window, staring out, and just, yeah. like, not thinking. Like, they'll be just out like, there playing or whatever, and he's just, like, staring at them with, like, super dead eyes through the window. Yeah. Um, and so... Phone lines are out. They have a CB radio that they've been using to connect to the, like, forest rangers um, down in Sidewinder, which is the closest town. Yeah. Um, and Danny keeps having some of these frightening visions. Like, yeah. he sees the girls and then sees them murdered, I yeah, think. Yeah, on another one of the um, his little bicycle routes, he turns a corner and he sees the Grady sisters holding hands and they do the whole, come play with us, Danny, come play with us forever and ever and ever thing that, like, everyone, you know, knows that they've they're famous for. And that's actually, it's when he pulls up there is when he sees them. Yeah. Murder. Like, they flash from just sitting there to, like, he sees, like, blood on the walls, and they're on the ground, and it's just really bloody and yeah. gross. And he's like, nope, I'm not going to do this. So he just, like, turns his trike around and Good boy. goes the other way. Get on out of there. <laughs> yeah. No, no reason to be there. And so he goes, and he ends up watching some TV with his mom. And they're watching, like, cartoons. Yeah, and he's like, I'm going to go get my fire engine. And she's like, your dad's asleep upstairs. Don't go get your fire engine. He's like, no, but I promise I'll tiptoe. I'll be quiet. And she's like, okay. Okay. But, like, at this point, if you have to be like, don't go up near your father while he's asleep, you should know something is very wrong, which I think she does. Yeah. And so he goes into the room to get his fire engine, 
And his dad is not asleep, actually. He's just sitting on the bed staring out the window like he has been. Yeah. And he's like, come here, come here. And so he goes over and he sits down next to him and is... Everything that he's saying is sweet, and Tim pointed out that it's almost the exact same stuff that I say to our dog, Queso, um, when I'm trying to express to him that I love him, which is like, he's like, you know, I love you and your mom more than anything, and I would never do anything to hurt you, ever. But it's all like this really creepy, like, dead, like, it doesn't sound genuine at all. And you can see that, like, he's hugging Danny, but Danny is not hugging him back. He's, like, very, like... I don't even know what the stiff, seems, I yeah, guess. He's like super freaked out by it. Yeah. So it's it's on paper a sweet moment, but in practice not it's read really well. creepy. Yeah. yeah. Um and so Danny takes another one of those little tricycle rides and goes by room two thirty seven again, and this time the door is open and there's a key in it. And he goes on in. Yeah. And And then we cut back to the Colorado lounge where Jack is typing. Yeah. Except he's not typing anymore. At this point, he's screaming his fucking brains out. Yeah, his head is down on the desk, and he is screaming. And Wendy can hear him screaming. And so she runs in, and she finds him, and she wakes him up. And he's talking about, I had the worst nightmare he's ever had. He yeah. dreamed that he killed Wendy and Danny. And he's, like, sobbing. And it's kind of the only moment you ever see him be, like, not horrible, where he's like, oh, my God, like, I had, like... I did this to you guys, and I'm like, oh my god, it was horrifying, you know? And then he talks about how he can not only did he kill them, but he chopped them up into little bits. Yeah, and she's like, okay, that's that's creepy now. But then Danny comes into the room, and yeah. his neck has this, like, huge bruise on it, and his shirt's all ripped up. And Wendy runs over to check on him, and she's like, what happened? What happened? He's not saying anything. And she turns around, and she's like, oh my god, it was you to Jack. Yeah. And Jack's like, what? And she's like, I fucking knew it. Like, Jack barely says a word in defense of himself. He just kind of sits there like, uh. Yeah, I think he's a little little whacked out at that point. Yeah. Um, so she's really mad and she like, you know, runs away with him. And so Jack wanders off on his own because he feels like, well, God, I can't, you know, no one's ever going to forgive me for what I did before. And like, oh, my wife hates me. And like, she won't let the past be the past. And so he wanders off. To get some alone time, and he goes into the gold room, which is the huge, gorgeous ballroom. And he's just talking to himself, and he walks in, he sits at the bar, and he looks up, and he says something, and it shoots to the bar, and there's a guy there. Yeah. He's like, hey, Lloyd, how the hell are you? And then all of a sudden, there is a bartender. Yup. Which is really cool. Yeah. The way that they do it is amazing. This scene is actually really cool. It's kind of a compilation of two scenes from the book, but um, so as their conversation is going on, like he's drinking real beer and then there are real people in the background around him and like it's very it's very creepy because you're like where did that shit come from like where's the music coming from and where did all the alcohol come from because they explain at the beginning that all the alcohol has been removed so he talks to lloyd lloyd serves him up some like bourbon or whiskey Mm -hmm. or something on the rocks and jack like lifts up his glass and he's like too or something about like two five months on the wagon Mm -hmm. which i thought was really interesting because according to wendy he has not had a drink since the kid was in nursery school right and he's now five so that would be like three years exactly and so clearly he has not actually been sober for years it's been only five months or else the hotel is fucking with his brain and he's not really sure what's going on around him anymore see i figured that he probably Slipped up and tell her. Yeah. I think it just shows that it's been an ongoing struggle, not <laughs> just like a, this isn't his first time relapsing. It's something he's dealt with over time. Yeah. And I thought this was actually one of the moments where they make a 
tribute to the fact that being an alcoholic is a struggle and yeah. something you have to deal with. And yeah. I know it's just one line, but, you know. Yeah, I like that interpretation. Um, so he gets, like, pretty drunk pretty quickly. Yeah, he has a couple drinks. And to be fair, he probably has no tolerance now. That's true. It's been a while. And so she goes in. She comes running in to the gold room, and she finds him there alone. Yeah, and Wendy runs in and says that Danny told her that there's a crazy woman who attacked him in the hotel, and that's who hurt him. She's like, we're not alone. I can't believe it. He's like, you're fucking crazy. Like, what are you talking about? And then she's like, no, this is what he said. Like, I believe it. So so she asks him to go check out room 237. Yeah, and he's like, whatever, okay. And then we see Dick Halloran back in Miami. Yup. And this is kind of, they ignore it in the movie, but in the book he tells him before, like, before he leaves, um, he has this talk, you know, the talk with Danny. And he says, I want you to try to send a message into my brain as hard as you can right now. And Danny's like, okay. And he tries and he does, and it nearly, like, gives him a concussion. Like, it hits him super hard. Like Danny or? um, No, Halloran. Halloran. Like, he projects a thought into his brain, like, so hard that it hurts him. And then he's like, I was kind of holding back on that because I thought that it might actually hurt you more. And oh, he's wow. like, okay, cool, good, because like my brain would have fallen out of my ears if you'd done it full strength. And so he tells him, if something goes wrong up here, call me. Like, I know you can do it. I think it'll probably, I'll probably be able to hear you from Florida. Do it. And so he does. Yeah. And so first I do also want to comment on the amazing artwork on DeColoran's <laughs> walls. It's just exclusively naked black women. Yes. And they look great. Like they it's do. actually a really but great it's pieces like of art. Every single picture in his house is just, it's just like a, a naked lady with her boots out. Yes, <laughs> um, I thought that was really funny. But yeah, um, Halloran is in Miami, and he starts to get a message of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool because Danny's sending this message, and while he's sending this message, you start to see into room two thirty-seven from like mm-hmm. a first-person shot, yeah. and he's exploring this room. And at first, you think it's Danny, but then you find out it's actually Jack is now exploring the room, and is Danny projecting what's going on with Jack right now to Halloran potentially? Or is he sharing, like, this is what happened to me? And, like, you don't really know, but you know that things are being sent. And it's, yeah. Like, difficult. That's something that I actually like a lot better than the way that they did it in the book. Because in the book, he just yells, like, please, Dick, help us, help us, help. Like, over. And it's literally just him shouting into him. And I, I think that this works way really better. Well. Where it just it interrupts whatever he's looking at. And it's just like, oh, shit. Okay. And that's kind of how he describes Tony as talking to him, too. Like, sometimes Tony uses words. But a lot mm-hmm. of times, he just shows him images. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, Danny Lloyd's acting here is he's really, really good. good. He's such a good little kid. I also read that um, Stanley Kubrick didn't actually tell him what was going on for no, most of the movie. He didn't know until he was way older what kind of movie it was. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Halloran gets it and he's like, oh, fuck. And he has to see what's going on with Jack. Mm-hmm. Which is that in the, in the uh, hotel room, he walks through and he walks through like the living area and up into the bathroom, which is this gorgeous... Super fucking crazy, like, 1920s style. Oh, my God. Like, teal tile. You probably know what it looks like because it's a pretty... Famous scene. Yeah, I- iconic image from the movie. Um, and he sees the behind the shower curtain in the bathtub, there's someone there. And it's this beautiful woman. She opens the, um, the bath curtain, and she's completely naked, obviously, because she's in the bathtub. And she stands up, and she walks over to him, and she grabs his face, and he, like grabs her and kisses her and they start like making out yeah. and then he comes up for air and looks into the mirror and sees her butt in the mirror 
But it's not the butt of the woman who he was just kissing. No, he's kissing a bloated, rotten corpse. Yep, who's also very old. Yeah. And so he's like, fuck this! And um, the now bloated, rotten corpse old woman starts laughing and, like, trying to follow him. And it's clear mm-hmm. that this is, like, what attacked Danny. Yeah. And he runs out of there. Yeah. And then when Wendy asks him, like, what did you see? Because he goes back to Wendy. He's like, oh, I didn't see anything. Yeah, he's like, there's it's fine. There. There's nothing there. It's just his imagination. Which I'm curious if, like, does he not remember it? Was he straight up lying? I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Because, again, they don't really give you a lot of his internal life. Yeah. Uh, in this. So Halloran tries dialing up the hotel to see what's going on. And he can't get through because the phone lines don't work, which we had found right. out earlier. So he instead calls the, like, local sheriff office near... Um, the hotel in Colorado and asks them to radio in because he knows that they have a really nice radio. Yeah. So they say they're going to. So Jack tells, you know, Wendy, no, nothing happened. We're totally fine. And Wendy's like, dude, we need to get him out of here. Like, we need to leave. This is bad. Something bad and weird is happening. And he's like, don't be a fucking idiot. I have responsibilities. Why don't you understand that? Yeah, he's really pissed. And so he storms off back to the gold room. Yeah. Where it's now full of people. Yeah, it's like a fucking party there It's a whole ballroom full of people, and Lloyd is so happy to have him back. And Lloyd gives him a drink, and Jack tries to pay for it, and he's like, oh no, your money is no good here. And he's like, orders from the management. Yeah, and he's like, I like to know who is buying me drinks, Lloyd. And he's like, don't worry about it. And But Jack's like, not happy about this. It's weird. No, he, yeah, it's very strange. He's like... They're, basically, he's like, well, you'll you'll meet him eventually, but don't worry about it for now. And he's like, okay, whatever. And so he goes to carry his drink. He's, like, going somewhere, and a waiter carrying Advocat. Which I don't know what that is. I have no idea what that is. But it seems like it's, like, a thick, it's got, like, an eggnoggy kind of texture to it because it, like, stains, it, like, spills on him. It's, like, thick and yellowish, I think. Um, so he spills this all over him. Apparently, it is a traditional Dutch alcoholic beverage made from eggs, sugar, and brandy. And that sounds delicious. That does sound super But that good. makes sense why it's so goopy and gross. Yeah. So he spills that all over him. And he's like, well, come with me. We'll go to the bathroom and we'll get you all cleaned up. And so they go to this insane red bathroom. That's so beautiful. All of the stuff. And the waiter guy is, like, helping get all the stuff off of his jacket. And they're chatting away. So he's cleaning all this avocado off of his jacket. And they're talking. And he mentions that his name is Delbert Grady, who was the caretaker who killed his wife and children. And Jack was like, I know that name. Mm -hmm. Well, Jack at some point also was like, haven't I seen you before? And he's like, no, you haven't. Yeah. and, And so they're talking. And he's like, well... You were the caretaker before, you know, you were the caretaker and you you murdered your wife and your kids. And he goes, no, I don't have any recollection of that. And I'm not the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker here. And Jack's like, what? And then he starts talking about how, like, you need to discipline your wife and your son. You need to keep them in line. You need to correct them. I corrected my wife and my daughters. And he talks about how one of his daughters didn't like the hotel and tried took matches and tried to burn it. But how he corrected her. Yeah. And... That made me think, mm-hmm. because in this movie, we know that this hotel has existed for quite a while. Obviously, it was built in 1902, and this is now 1980. And there's only been one instance of someone going crazy and, like, murdering a ton of people. Right. And so if the daughter was able to sense that something was wrong in the hotel, it made me curious if that daughter had The Shining. I think that's definitely possible. And I think that that might be a hint, you know? Yeah, and maybe that's why... Like, her having that ability brought it out of the hotel more and made the father then go crazy and kill them. I think that there's actually, if you look into the book, I think there's a lot to support that. Because for one thing, the fact that after that happened, they mentioned in the book that they only hired single men for, like, the several years following because they didn't want anything like that to happen again. 
figure better one person go crazy than one person go crazy and kill his whole family. Um, but they also mentioned that the hotel wants Danny. Because with Danny's power, it can do more damage. Yeah. Because he's so strong with the Shining. So, yeah, I mean, if there's a girl there who has the Shining, that might but definitely It also makes explain. sense, yeah, if she had the Shining, it made the hotel more powerful, which is why it's able to do now what it's doing. Yeah. I think that that's a really good reading of it. I think that that would make a lot of sense. But so, um, so Jack agrees, and he's like, I'm going to go take care of my family. And he's like, family. oh, by the way, didn't you know your son is trying to bring someone else into this? He's mm-hmm. trying to, they, he uses the N-word to describe Halloran, which... Is not great. Um, and so obviously, you know, that because it's a Stephen King book, he is the only black character in the entire book. So um, that narrows down the options pretty quickly. And he's like, oh, I know who that is. Yep. And so he decides he's going to go take care of this and he's going to fix his son. You and know? so he goes to go see his son. And as he's walking back, he hears the radio with like the sheriff's calling in. Yeah. And he's like, fuck this. Yep. And he breaks the radio. So he destroys the radio. So now that they have absolutely no way to connect. And Halloran finds out about this because he calls back. And he talks to the police and they're like, oh, we tried reading up and we didn't hear anything. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. They're probably just asleep or it's a big hotel or whatever. And Halloran's like, nope, that's bad. So he decides to fly back. Yeah. And that is a strong decision to make based off of not a lot of information. To be fair, he saw visions of what was happening. That's true. And he heard firsthand from the little boy that shit's going down. That is true. So there's lots of information that he has. Yeah. But he has to lie to a couple people on the way where he's just like, oh, yeah, the people up there, they're not doing a good job taking care of it. So I have to go up there and fix it now. <laughs> like, because you can't be like, oh, I had a psychic vision that a father is trying to kill his child. Cause... I don't even know if he goes into that much detail in the movie. I think there's like one phone call where he's like, oh, yeah, they're no good up there. I have to go up. Yeah. In the mo- in the book, it's a lot of him being like, something bad's happening to a kid up there. And then being like, why do you think that? And him being like. Um, I, it just is. Uh, so I just need to get there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Danny goes into a trance at this point. Yeah. He is no longer Danny. He no, is just Tony at this point. He's pretty much just Tony. And he just starts screaming red rum. And it's creepy. Red rum, red rum. Yeah. It's awful. It's horrible. He does a great job with that voice, but I hate it And he it does so start actually much. referring to himself as Tony as well. Yeah. And Wendy's like, this is fucked up. I don't like it. And so she goes to talk to Jack and be like, we need to fucking go. Like, something's wrong with Danny. And so she's searching for him. And she goes into the office room that she's not really supposed to go into yeah and jack is not there no but his but, typewriter is yeah and she starts looking at his typewriter and looking at his manuscript because he's written a lot yeah and every single page all work and no play makes jack a dull boy over and over and over and over and over again yeah but i do want to make a comment here too what work has he actually done none so it's more like he's done no work. There's been, there's not been all work and no play. It's been all play and no work. Makes, makes Jack, Jack a, a crazy lunatic. <laughs> like what the heck? And so she looks at all of these and it's a super long shot where she's just looking and looking and looking and looking. I think it goes on a little longer than it needs to. Well, it's kind of cool because you're going through and you see there are typos or times where there isn't yeah. a space or it says like. Makes him a dull bot. Yeah, things like that. And it's all, they're all formatted differently. So, like, they're broken into paragraphs. Some are, like, formatted like a play. So, if you looked at it from far away, it actually might look like a manuscript. And she's like, oh, shit. This is super, super bad. And he shows up and he's like, what do you think, Wendy? And she's like, we need to go. We need to get out of here. We have to leave right now, right away. Yeah. And he's like, well, you know... I have responsibilities. You never accept my responsibilities. You never respect me. And she's for some reason holding a baseball bat. I honestly think she's been holding on to it since she found out there might be a crazy woman in the hotel. Yeah. And he starts like getting, he's getting very physically aggressive. Yeah. Like, like she's sort of 
So she starts, like, backing Swinging off, him. and he seems like he might attack her, so she kind of swings at him a couple times. And he's like, oh, you missed me. And then she, like, accident not accidentally, but, like, kind of hits his arm or something, which, like, distracts him. He's like, ah, and then she, like, takes a swing at his head, and it knocks him, and he falls down the stairs. Yeah. She drags him into the pantry and locks him in there. Yeah, and he is mad about it. Oh, yeah, he's not happy. <laughs> he comes to kind of while she's putting him in there, and he's like what the fuck like let me out like i'm gonna i'm gonna kill you and then he's like well no 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 it'll be fine it'll be fine like just let me out and this will all be we'll put this all behind us and at some point he starts crying he's like like i think you hurt me real bad wendy like everything's dizzy i think i need to see a doctor and she's like no we're gonna be gone for a second we're gonna go down to sidewinder i'm gonna get danny help and then we'll be right back for you i'm so sorry he's like lol that's what you think yeah and she's like what and so she leaves him there. She locks him in. She goes to check on the snowcat, which is the snowmobile that can get them out of there. And the battery has been ripped apart. Yep. So he has obviously done that at some point in time. She goes and she finds the uh, radio that's completely demolished as well. And she's like, fuck, what do we do now? And so back in their like living quarter area, Danny is still in his like ultimate creepy child mode. Red rum. Red, Red rum. rum. And he writes the word red rum. In lipstick. Yeah. On the door next to Wendy. I feel like Wendy's gone to sleep or something like yeah, that. Yeah, she locked him in and she goes up. She's like, fuck this. Like, I'm so screwed. And so she goes to sleep. And yeah, he's doing his whole red rum, red rum thing. Yeah. And he writes it. And he, then he starts screaming it. And it wakes her up. She's like, what are you doing? And she grabs him. And he looks in the, she looks in the mirror. And red rum reflected in the mirror reads murder. Yeah. So um, while this was happening, Jack gets a visitor Yeah. in the pantry. This is interesting. It's the only unequivocally supernatural thing that happens, that there's absolutely no other explanation for. Like, you could say Halloran got a bad feeling and decided to go investigate, but there is no one else who could have let Jack out, unless it was Danny. Which, but he, he was with his mom. And he was with time. his mom, yeah. But Grady shows up and says, hey, it doesn't really seem like you're doing a super good job of that. um, And that, like, your wife is a lot stronger than we thought she would be. And he's like, well, I'm going to get him. Don't worry. Like, this is just a temporary setback. Like, we're going to get him. It's fine. I just need to get out of here. And And so so Grady unlocks the door. Yep. So Jack grabs an axe and goes upstairs to pay a little visit to uh, Wendy and Danny. So back up in the, uh, the living quarters... We see Wendy, who is freaking out a little bit. She's freaking out. Honestly, her son just wrote murder backwards on a wall. Yeah. And so she's like, shit. She's noticed it through the mirror. She's like, fuck, that says murder. And then we hear Jack coming up. Yeah. And he's making a lot of noise. And he's singing and yelling and shouting to himself. And she's like, oh, fuck. So she goes into the bathroom and locks her and Danny in the bathroom. And Um, she opens a window that she tries to get Danny out of. And Danny gets out. Danny gets out of fine, but she can't fit out. No. And Jack breaks into the hotel room yeah. and sees that they're not in there but can tell that they're in the bathroom. So he starts, like, axing the door over and over again. Yeah. And um, that's when you get the, here's Johnny. He, yep. like, slams a big hole through it and he sticks his face in. He reaches down to open the door and she, thinking wisely, um, slashes at him with a razor that she's found. Um, she was just carrying around a kitchen right. knife for some reason. Sorry, it's a razor. Oh, no, you know what it was? Is <laughs> Danny found the knife and was carrying it around. Yeah. And then when he woke her up by screaming red rum, she took it from him. Yeah, which is smart. You should do that if your child shows up screaming things and is wielding a knife. Yeah. And so, yeah, she, like, slashes his hand. He's like, ugh. And then he hears something downstairs. Yeah, he hears the snowcat noises. And he's like, interesting. What's that outside? And so he actually, like, leaves Wendy and goes downstairs. Yeah, and she's because, like, oh, thank God. Yeah. At this point, Halloran has rented a snowmobile. He's arrived in Colorado, and he's driven all the way up. He's yep. our, our conquering hero on the way to save the day. Halloran comes into the hotel, and he's walking around. He's like, hello? 
Hello. He could have been a little more stealthy. He probably could in have been. In this scene, I think it would have served him well. Well, I mean, if Jack hadn't gone, like, batshit crazy. Yeah, but he kind of knew that Jack was probably going batshit That's crazy. That's true. But anyway, it doesn't work out so well for him. To be fair, the visions that he got, and even in the book, if he just got like, help me, help me, help me. True. He, he doesn't, doesn't know that it's Jack that's like causing all these problems. That's true, yeah. So That's not super clear. He's walking around yelling out like, hello, like, is anyone here? And then he gets a straight axe to the chest. Yeah, Jack just pops out from behind a pillar and just slams the axe into his chest and he dies, obviously. Yeah, which, which is, is a bummer. different. Than the book. Yeah, that's not how it happens in the book. And I was really sad in the movie because I really like Halloran. Yeah, Halloran's great. He's a really good character. Um, but Jack goes outside to try and find Danny. Yeah, because Danny's outside. He knows Danny's outside. And Danny goes into the hedge maze. Yep. And Jack is following him, and Danny's trying to hide from him. And he's and following the footprints because there are a lot of footprints in the snow. Yeah. And so what Danny does is he walks backwards through his own footprints mm-hmm. um, so he doesn't create new ones. And he, like, gets on all fours and is backing up around, like, going behind a corner, but he's covering up his footprints as he goes back. Yeah. And so he hides there, and he waits for Jack to kind of get away. Yeah. And, and so he retraces his footsteps to get out. Mm-hmm. And Jack, like, kept following the footsteps after he passed where – um, Danny actually was, and he gets lost. And yeah. also, this is his first time in the maze. Like, right. Danny spent a lot of time in the maze because he'd go in there with his mom. Not mm-hmm. a lot of time necessarily, but some time. But more, yeah. Um, and he's also in a better state of mind. That's true. And Jack is freezing and he's losing it. And in the meantime, Wendy is trying to find Danny and she's running down through the hotel and she sees, like, all these ghosts. Grady with a, uh, um, I think it's Grady with a split open head, right? Or is it the dog man? It's Grady with, like, the head that is all bloody and stuff like that. But she also sees the dog-pig-man thing um, clearly going down on another dude. Yeah. That I don't think was Grady. I think it was just another, like, No, that's, that's, they explain that in the book, but it's not at all. There's no context for it in the movie. No, there's no context. (laughs) It's one of the few things that is literally not remotely explained in the movie. Um, she also runs into the ballroom, which is now just full of skeletons and cobwebs. Yeah, she sees the elevators full of blood open up. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's like, I'm gonna get the fuck out. So she runs yeah. out of the hotel mm-hmm. and she finds Danny and they are able to get into the snow cat and go down the hill. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson is left behind and he's like screaming incoherently. And I guess yeah. if you have these subtitles on, you can see that he actually originally he's like, Wendy, Wendy, like help me. And he actually yeah. like, he might be coming back to sanity. You don't know if he's faking it or if he's actually like coming back to being sane again. Cause it seems like he'd go in and out. Yeah. But either way we see him freeze to death. Yeah. He is snow. Yeah. And then we see a shot from one of the pictures in the ballroom that is taken on July 4th, 1921. And down in the very front of the picture is, is Jack. Jack. And he's all dressed up in, like, the right attire. He's, he's like, smiling. He looks like he had a great time. And then we end the movie. And that's The Shining. Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting movie. It is. It has a very ambiguous ending, which is kind of cool. Yeah. You I, don't really know what, like, what happened there. Like, how did he end up in Was he always there? Did any of this shit actually happen? Was it all in people's heads? It's hard to say. I know. And it's kind of cool. It's really interesting to think about, except Kubrick specifically said, don't think about it too hard. (laughs) That's true. So uh, before we get into, you know, a lot of the the themes and stuff like that, let's just go over a little bit of background on The Shining. Yeah. So like we mentioned before, this was originally written by Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And it was first published in 1977. So this was a pretty shortly after they made it. Yeah. About three years later. Yeah. Um, and I love the story of him being inspired to write The Shining because 
he had just written two other books, and I can't think of the name of them off the top of my head, but both of them are set in Maine. A lot of his work is set in Maine because he's from Maine. I was going to say, I feel like I could think of at least two books set in Maine, but I think a lot of them are. Yeah, most of them are. I think it was like Carrie and Salem's Lot he had already written, which mm-hmm. are both set in Maine. Um, Carrie was his first one. Yeah, so definitely that, and I think Salem's Lot was the other cool. one. Um, and he was like, well, okay, well, I can't write every single thing based in Maine, so I'm going to figure out, I'm going to go somewhere else, we're going to get away, I'm going to learn about a new area. And so they opened up a map, and they picked a random place, and it was um, like Boulder, Colorado. So they went out and they stayed at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. And they got there right at the end of the season. So they were the only two people in the hotel. That's so cool. Right? But, like, creepy. And, like, the hotel's rumored to be haunted. And they stayed in room 217, which is the same room. They changed it in the movie, but it's the it's room 217 in the book. Um, That's such a weird thing to just change. Yeah, so the reason that they did that is that um, when they actually shot on location, the hotel asked them to please change it to a, a room that they didn't actually have there. Oh, that makes sense. So they sense. had to change it to 237. But originally, they'd actually stayed in room 217 at the Stanley, and it was rumored to be haunted. And he said that there was one night that they went to dinner, and it was just the two of them in the ballroom, and all of the other chairs were up on the tables at all the tables around them, and there was this fake, like, opera music being, you know, played in there to kind of add the mood, and he was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, it was so <laughs> weird and creepy. And, like, it's this big, huge hotel, and they would just wander around. And he said he went down to the bar one night, and he got served a martini by a guy named Grady, who was the barkeeper or the bartender who uh, served him. And he went upstairs that night, and he had a dream about his son being chased by, like, a, a fire hose that came alive like a snake, which is actually a scene in the book. And he woke up, and he lit a cigarette, and he stared out his window at the Rocky Mountains, and by the time he was done with the cigarette, he basically had the whole book in his mind. That's so cool. Yeah. I just, it was crazy, like, to read him talk about it and be like, oh, that thing happened, and that thing happened, and that, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Like, it's just yeah, kind of all of that stuff. And at the time, he'd also, uh, he had young children. He was kind of dealing with the normal, like, well, you're the dad, but, like, you're still a person, so sometimes you're going to have resentment towards your kids, or you'll be angry at your kids, and you feel guilty about it. Which I don't think this movie does very well in the sense that no. this doesn't ever feel like justified resentment towards your kids. No. But I think a movie that does it really well is The Babadook. Yeah. Um, because I think that just highlights so well the difficulties of being a parent and how you can sometimes really get upset at your kids and just upset that you even have kids sometimes. Right. Yeah. And he'd also been struggling with alcoholism at this point in time. So that's a much larger part of the book than it is of the movie. Like in the movie, they obviously mention the fact that he is an alcoholic and he's quit drinking. And then when he starts to drink again, it's when the real problems start. Um, but there's a lot more talk about it in the book. It's like a very, very strong theme. And Jack in general in the book is a lot more sympathetic. Um, and I think that that comes from the fact that he's based off of Stephen King. You know? Yeah. Like when you write about yourself, you're going to be a little bit more sympathetic. So at the same time, so that's a little bit of backstory on the, on the book itself. Kubrick at this time had just finished making Barry Lyndon, which is like this really kind of dry, apparently like costume period piece type situation. And he was bored and it hadn't done very well. And he was like trying to read something to like figure out what he was going to do next. And he said he he never likes to try to read in any sort of systemic way. Like he doesn't want to, you know, organize it out. So he's just going to be exposed to the same ideas. He wants to like try a bunch of random stuff, which I think is a really cool idea. And I think it shows in his work, you know, like he's done a ton of different, genres so he read the shining and he was like this is a really cool premise yeah um and he'd been a fan of a couple of other horror movies like you talked about liking rosemary's baby for example yeah and the exorcist yeah but 
I remember reading that he didn't actually think he could do a very good horror movie. He'd never really done like a pure horror movie before. Yeah. And so when he wanted to talk about making this, he wanted to make sure it'd be okay if he made changes along the way. Yeah. Which Stephen King said yes to. I don't think he expected. I don't. I think he, he probably very much regretted that decision. Yeah. Because he changed almost everything. Honestly, it was a completely different story. Yeah. Like a lot of if you. When reading different articles about it, a lot of them referred to it as a loose adaptation. Of it the is book. a very loose adaptation. Um, but so he, you know, he decided, you know, whatever, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take this main premise. I'm going to dig out the parts that I like. I'm going to get rid of the parts that I don't necessarily like. He'd also been really inspired by Eraserhead. Um, Which I haven't seen. I haven't seen either, but it is it is very surreal. I mean, it's Lynch, so it's, it's very surreal. And then it's, you know, it's got these interesting camera movements and all that stuff. is kind of stuff that he pulled and that sort of showed back up in The Shining. Um, and so there are a ton of differences between the book and the movie. <laughs> yeah, there are. There's a lot. And I think that, you know, that's something that always happens with an adaptation. Um, but it, it's really, really noticeable in, in this. And uh, it starts with just even the characters. They're super, super simplified down to the point where it's just like Jack hates his family. Danny's They're really quiet. They're each like one quality yeah. that defines them. Yeah. I was also reading that... The characters in the book are actually supposed to be, like, really conventionally attractive people. Mm -hmm. And in this, they're not. Not really, They're not, like, ugly people, but they're not, like... Yeah. You don't ever see Jack Nicholson cast as, like, the leading romantic lead until he's, like, 65 and watching, like, Something's Gotta Give. But... And then Danny talks a lot more as well. Oh, yeah. Danny's, like, super, like, this precocious kid who, like, because he can read minds, knows all the stuff he's not supposed to know. And so, like, he keeps some stuff to himself because, like... You know, he would get in trouble with his mom or whatever. And so, but he, he's just like a really interesting kid. He's a funny kid. He's really affectionate. He has this wonderful relationship with both of his parents, even though they do have this, you know, bad event that happened between him and, you know, that the Jack broke his arm in the I book. I mean, I stepped on my cat's paw once as an accident. Like, accidents happen, kind of. In the book, Jack snaps his arm. Oh, God. Ow. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. In, in the movie... The fact that it was, like, a dislocated shoulder from pulling too hard makes mm-hmm. it seem like it could have actually just been an accident. Yeah, I think that's another thing that's left vague where it's, like... How bad was it actually? Yeah. Like, he seems way more unhinged than that. So, like, maybe it was really worse. Maybe it actually was. He, like, snapped his arm and then they were, yeah. like, covering it up by saying, oh, he's just a dislocated shoulder because he pulled a little bit too hard. Yeah. I didn't realize he literally, like, snapped... Oh, God. Yeah, in the book, it's something that, like, haunts him, which is another thing that you don't really see in the movie. In the book, he's haunted by that. Like, he feels horrified about that that he did that to his son and like he thinks of it often there's like multiple points in the book where he just remembers the snapping noise and like it's something that you know you know he's like disgusted with himself for having done and you get more of that like he's aware of how bad it was he's aware of how badly he's fucked up in his life and how severe his drinking problem was and you don't really see any of that there's no real internal conflict with jack nicholson no it doesn't seem like there's any regret no he he's just sort of a douche the whole time um, and Wendy is also a completely different character in the book. She's much more resourceful, much more There's this great strong. Yeah, there's this great quote from Stephen King where he says that Shelley Duvall as Wendy is probably one of the most misogynistic characters ever put on film because she's basically there just to scream and be stupid, and that's not the woman I wrote about. Yeah. I might have fudged a little bit of the wording there. Yeah, that's close enough. Um, but I mean that I mean, yeah, that's it's super noticeable. Kubrick didn't think that a woman like the Wendy in the book would be with a man like the Jack in the book. Or I guess the way he interpreted the Jack in the book. Um, but I don't think that's how abusive relationships were. No, it's not. And and especially, I mean, I don't really know much about Kubrick's personal relationships. I think he was a pretty private guy. Whereas King is very autobiographical, especially in this book. And 
I think it kind of makes sense that, like, when King looks at a character like Jack, he sees, like, oh, yeah, he did that horrible shit, but, like, he was struggling with alcoholism at the time, too. So, like, he had probably done a lot of stuff that he was really embarrassed by or regretted and was aware of, like, you can do that stuff and have it not really be who you are when you're not drinking. Yeah, he probably sees, like, a person as, like, almost a different person when they're an alcoholic. Yeah, and kind of being more aware of the shades of, like, you can mess up and you can love your family and still mistreat them and it's more complicated than Meanwhile, that. Meanwhile, in this, like, it was very black and white and yeah. Jack was, like, a just asshole. He never showed any real affection towards his family the entire movie. No, and Kubrick apparently didn't drink at all. So I think that maybe it's just that he doesn't have that same context and he's not looking at it the same way. And if you don't have any experience with that, maybe it's easier to look at it and be like, well, this guy's a fucking monster. You know, yeah. he's a monster the whole time. And he actually has a quote about Jack, which is, Jack comes to the hotel psychologically prepared to do its murderous bidding. He doesn't have very much further to go for his anger and frustration to become completely uncontrollable. He is bitter about his failure as a writer. He's married to a woman for whom he has only contempt. He hates his son in the hotel at the mercy of its powerful evil. He is quickly ready to fulfill its dark role. Which is very different than the book. That's also not true. Like... I just, I guess for me, it's confusing to see how he read the book and took away from it. He hates his son because like there are whole passages where it's like him being conflicted about realizing that he's coming to resent his family more and more and more. And also thinking about how much he loves his family and like he loves Wendy. And so when he starts to get really like resentful of them, you're like, oh no, this is not him, you know? Yeah. Like there's, the seeds are definitely there. And I think that he's right that like he is the right person to show up and break completely because he has all of that kind of buried and he does have like rage problems and he can't accept like his responsibility for his own actions. Um, But I almost think that it's more interesting when you see the complete Jack, right? And you see, so he's got these good parts, right? And you know that the whole time and you really are rooting for the good parts to come through. But you also understand that the hotel is taking all of these bad aspects of him, his alcoholism, his refusal to take responsibility for his actions, his resentment, his bitterness about his, his writing, which is also true. Yeah. And it's pulling those so far to the forefront and exaggerating them so fully that you know that those are in there and that they're a good foothold and it's going to get him, you know? Yeah. It's almost more sad when you can see the whole Jack and you understand that it's literally just a guy who's trying to be good and he's just not able to keep from breaking. I think it also makes it scarier in the sense that you can put yourself in his shoes much yeah. more easily than... I don't think anyone can, like, put themselves in Jack Nicholson's shoes. No. Either. And I think it's also easier to understand why she would even go there with him. Because, like, in the movie, you're like, don't go to the secluded hotel with Jack Nicholson. He's going to fucking axe murder you. Yeah. But in the book, it's like, well, she had almost left him and then he quit drinking and then everything's been really good since then. So they're they're kind of looking at the relationship again and things are getting better. And when they first get up there, things are great. Like it's the best their relationship has ever been. And they're super happy and super in love, which is part of the reason that Danny's like, not like we need to leave. Everything's really bad. Cause he also can tell that his parents are getting along better. Yeah. It just like kind of explains everyone's motives. Motives. Yeah. And like why they do what they do so much better. But again, I think that you can see that when it's something that you wrote about yourself, you know? Yeah. There's that personal aspect, and it might be harder for someone else to... Yeah, there's a chance just Kubrick could not identify with these characters in the yeah. slightest. Which, I mean, that kind of seems like how it is because, again, they're not super fleshed out in terms of their personalities. Yeah. Um, and there are also a lot of changes made to the hotel itself. Yes. They change a lot of the threats. So the topiaries to the maze is a big one. Um, the maze is not in the book at all. In the book, it's uh, topiary animals that start to move when you're not looking at them um, that follow Jack around, and then one of them bites Danny and, like, scrapes up his leg, and then when Halloran comes up, they attack him and nearly kill him. Um, And in 
the mini series that Stephen King made of The Shining later on, he does include the topiaries. And that was actually the first version of The Shining I ever saw. I never saw the entire thing of it, but I watched like an hour of it or something yeah. like that. Just in the middle, you know, with no context as sure. what live <laughs> just TV random is. random events. Well, live TV, you know, you can always right. start things yeah. from the beginning. But I remember being like these topiaries, and I was like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah, it... Honestly, I think that changing the topiaries to the maze was a really good idea. Yeah, um, they did not look good in the miniseries. They're a little weird in the book. I think they would have been really bad, especially in 1980 in the movie. Yeah. Um, And I also think it's interesting that they went from something that is, like, unquestionably supernatural. Like, they move and attack people in the book. To something that is not supernatural in the slightest. No, it's just a totally normal maze, and the only thing scary about it is Jack. Which I think kind of fits into the whole, the way that they change a lot of it is that, like, they take away a lot of the ghosts from the hotel and make it just Jack. Yeah, and it's interesting because you can definitely read this for the most part, minus like the Grady unlocking the thing. You could also just say that maybe Shelly was bad at, yeah, maybe that Wendy was just bad at locking things. Right, able to like push it open or something like that. But other than that, there's nothing distinctly supernatural that happens, and so you can just read it as Jack's going crazy. Yeah. Um, Another thing that they change is that. So there, there's some things that are just removed. Like in the book, there's a a wasp's nest that they get that's like a, a theme, kind of like for the hotel. Um, like he finds it and he kills all the wasps in it and he gives it to Danny and then the wasps come back and like sting Danny. So it's sort of like you think it's safe and you bring it to your child and then your child is harmed because of it. And the wasps kind of tend to be like a symbol for the ghost throughout the book. They get rid of that, obviously. I think that that, again, sometimes you got to cut stuff out. Like that makes sense to me. Um, Especially in like a 600 page book. Yeah. And this movie is two and a half hours long. It is. I do think that it's really slow in parts and that they could have fit in a lot. He could have fit in a lot more without sacrificing runtime. I don't know. I think it is the right amount of slow because it's supposed to be like a slow burn for tension reasons. Is that ultimately if you did fit all of this stuff in, it would be a completely different movie and it wouldn't fit with what Kubrick was trying to make. Because I do think Kubrick did some really amazing artistic things in this movie. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but there's also some stuff that I, I think, you know, might have been different. I think that the, um, a lot of the, the really interesting things have been added for the movie. Like, Danny's visions of the hotel are completely different in the book. He sees, um, for one thing, that's not an axe that Jack kills people with. It's a roke mallet, which is like a, a version of croquet that has a similar mallet. Um, so he sees, like, a bloody roke mallet. He hears someone coming down the hallway trying to get him, saying, like, take your medicine. It's time to take your medicine like a man and stuff like that. And he sees the topiary animals. And he kind of gets these glimpses of things that, like, when he gets to the hotel, he sees them. And he's like, oh, uh-oh, oh, no, that's bad. Like, because in the book, like, not everything he sees comes true. And so he, at first he's like, well, whatever. Like, it's I'm just imagining things. It's fine. It's not going to happen. And then he gets to the hotel and he's like, oh, that's the mallet I saw in my, like, in my flashback. And, oh, those are the animals that I saw. And he kind of starts to put it together a little bit differently. But that said, there's a reason that, like, the Grady sisters and the elevator of blood and all of that stuff are, like, super, super iconic. They look amazing. They look so good. Like, they look so cool. They're great for the purpose, you know? And it keeps it a little bit more vague. You're saying the Grady sisters are great? There are some Grady sisters. <laughs> I'm hilarious. Yeah. That's why I'm here. I'm just here for the comic relief. <laughs> um, and there's like, there's details of Jack's breakdown that are obviously changed. Like in the movie, he just destroys the CB radio because people are trying to talk to him. In the book, he hears his father's, who is also an abusive alcoholic, telling him to kill his wife and son. And so he smashes it. And so that's like, he's more of trying to struggle against it instead of leaning into it. But then like, it's a, it's sort of twisting him to make it, so that he's doing what it wants, even though he thinks he's doing the right thing. Um, 
in the book, he doesn't want to leave because he doesn't want to lose his job and become unemployable, which is sort of played out, but it's really just more that, like, he is has this growing allegiance to the hotel, you Yeah, know? we don't see in the movie that he had, like, job troubles before that. It's never really spoken about. Yeah. So I think that part of it's that he's talking about, oh, well, I won't have this job. And it's like, fine, get another one. Right. And because we don't know the past that he was, like, the teacher who got fired for his rage, just he just have a problem finding job, like, it makes it a little bit less understandable why he wouldn't just leave. Right. Um, And even in the book, at one point, he's literally like, oh, the hotel is fucking with me. And I need to stop because, like, I'm going to do something bad. And he ultimately, by the time, like, he's out in the shed and he realizes that. And by the time he's left the shed, he's just like, okay, so the hotel's fucking with me. I'm going to go with it. You know, like, I'm going to go kill myself. Basically, I'm going to go kill my family. Um, Which I also think is sort of even more of a metaphor for alcoholism. Like, he knows something's wrong. And he knows that there's something that he can't control in himself. And but part of him is like, right. Part of him is like, well, I need to do something about it. But then ultimately it ends up being overwhelming to him and he's not able to do that successfully. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a lot of other things. The parties are different. Wendy's character, again, is much more active. And Danny knows about exactly what's going to happen for the murders and tries to, you know, save themselves a little bit more aggressively. But I think it's also important to look at why those changes were made. And, of course, there's some stuff like the CGI and, like, the length and, and that sort of thing. And, and, again, I think it's just a lot of the... That's not the movie that Kubrick was trying to make. Yeah. You know? It's a great horror movie. It would be a fantastic horror movie. But Kubrick wasn't really a horror director. No, he wasn't. And so he couldn't... I don't think he wanted to make a traditional horror movie. No. I don't think he did either. He doesn't really seem like he likes the genre that much. He didn't seem to actually like the book. Yeah... <laughs> Which is interesting to me. And I'm really curious about this. So we spoke, we've alluded to the fact that Stephen King did not like this. No, he didn't. Version of his story. Um, So I'm not sure if this quote is from before or after Stephen King started shitting on it. But it seems like there's a lot of beef between Kubrick and King. I think that this might have been in an interview before the movie came out. But again, I don't know if, like, King saw the screenings before. Because Stephen King offered to write the screenplay. He actually wrote a screenplay. He sent it to him, and he threw it away without looking at it. Which is ridiculous. That's mean. Yeah. But it also, I mean, to me it says that, like, he was never intending on using a lot of the original source material. But, like, no, from I don't the think beginning, he was. he was like... Also, I mean, I do think it's difficult for people who write books to then write screenplays and have them yeah. be good. Yeah. I mean, look at uh, Crimes of Grindelwald, right? It's true. Girlfriend needs to just stop. She does. Just go live in your mansion. Just I chill. Know. Um, but when an author, it's just a completely different writing style because yeah. it's really visual. Um, a lot of like the symbolism and flashbacks and stuff like that, they need to be structured in a very specific way. Right. And also you can't go on for 600 minutes. No, you can't. And I think that another thing is that like Kubrick talks in this, the the interview he does with Michael Simen, I don't know how you say it. It's French, C-I-M-E-N-T. Look it up. It's an interesting interview. Simon? Is that how you say it? Something like that. Okay. You would know better than me. <laughs> um, he mentions that he really likes, uh, he doesn't like a lot of dialogue. Which shows up. There's not a lot of dialogue in the movie, to be honest. There's Because he really likes silent movies. Yeah. He loves silent movies. He feels like they do a better job of giving you all the information in a clean way and letting it kind of build quickly from a starting point. So it kind of makes sense that, like, someone like Stephen King is not going to write a screenplay that someone like Stanley Kubrick wants to direct. But to get back to the quote that we have yes, sorry. <laughs> built up a lot, Kubrick says that the novel is by no means a serious literary work. And he said that with The Shining, the problem was to extract the essential plot and reinvent the sections of the story that were weak. The characters needed to be developed a bit differently than they were in the, in the novel. 
so it's all intentional. Like, it's not like he just couldn't fit it in. He didn't want to. Yeah. And I guess he didn't have that much. I think he might have enjoyed the book, but didn't have respect for it. Yeah. But also, if King was, like, shitting on him, he was like, well, it's not like your book's literature anyway. True. Yeah. I, I honestly, it just sounds like two men getting mad at each other. I respect Kubrick. Um, I don't know if it's because of a lot of the people that I've met who are huge Kubrick fans, because having gone to film school, I think it's hard to a avoid lot of them. really insufferable people, um, <laughs> probably myself included. But I think of him kind of as the kind of guy who thinks that things that are popular are stupid. You know? Like a lot of film yeah. artists. Like, you know, he compares it to not being like, oh, you know, that plot is not as big in, like, serious literature right now, so we have to go to, like, oh, the horror or the pop culture stuff to get it. Where it's like, well, you know, who says that Stephen King's not serious literature? Yeah. He writes about serious themes and he writes really well about them, so just because it's scary, it can't be serious literature? Like, gothic horror has always been a huge literary genre. And then Kubrick just added the death of Halloran for, like, no real reason other than just for shock value. Yeah, well, he thought that if Halloran showed up, it would be too obvious that he's gonna come and get them and save them. And so he just kills him. Ugh. Then he just feeds into the horror trope of the black man being the one to die first. That is a good point, although I don't know... If that trope existed yet. Yeah. It might have been... It might not have. I don't know. I'm sure that it had come up because it was 1980, so, like, some of... Well, some of the horror... I think it was a lot of movies in the 80s and 90s and... that, like, defined that. Yeah, I think it was a little early for it. But still, I mean, then it even feeds into that being a trope in the first place. Yeah, which we'll get into a lot later on. Yeah. Um, you know, again, he cuts out enormous parts of the dialogue. Danny is a totally different character because of it. Like, there's just all these little changes... And he was also just a total dick to Shelley Duvall. Oh, my God. Yeah. His onset choices are, like, really intense. He just, like, tortured her until she was so miserable that all of her hair was falling out. Yeah. And she just didn't want to be there anymore. No, she wanted to go home. It worked. Like, if you watch the movie, like, she re- legitimately seems terrified and just, like, hysterical all the time. That's because she was in real life. She wasn't even <laughs> acting at that point. Well, that's actually what he was going for. Yeah. Because he – the way that he looked at it was that if you read your lines – and you get the first couple takes, you're still having to remember what your lines are. And so you're not focusing entirely on your directions. But if you've already done the scene 30 times, then you know the lines that you're supposed to say, and you can just focus on the emotion of the scene. That's true. So, like, he made her do all those scenes, like, a million times. He drove her crazy. Which also is one of the reasons why this movie was probably so expensive. Yeah, it took a long time, and you have to pay people (laughs) for later hours and longer shoots and stuff like that. Apparently, he made Scatman Crothers do the Halloran death scene, like, 43 times until Scatman Crothers, who was, like, in his 70s at this point, burst into tears and asked him, what the fuck do you, what what the hell do you want from me or what the fuck do you want from me or something like that? And Jack Nicholson had to be like, how about we just call it a day? How about this is just the end of it and we let this poor man, like, go home? Because, I mean, it's the same thing where, again, he doesn't even do that much in that scene, I gotta be honest with you. Like, he, he kind of comes in and then gets murdered. I don't know what deeper emotion... Kubrick was necessarily looking for there. Like, I get, like, when Shelley Duvall is in the bathroom and Jack Nicholson is, like, breaking open the door right. and she's screaming because she is terrified for her life. Exactly. You want that there. But I don't really know what he needed to do in the Halloran death scene. He oh, doesn't yeah. even see it coming, really. No. Which is ironic, considering he's psychic. True. You yeah. think he might have seen something coming. Maybe if he's shown just a little bit harder. Yep. Um, interestingly, he did not do any of that stuff with Danny Lloyd. He was super, super nice to Danny Lloyd. Well, he was, like, five years old. Exactly. So it's kind of like, you know, I mean, yes, he was an asshole. He he wasn't 
unilaterally an asshole to the cast. He kind of knew when to... I do think it's really cute that he didn't tell Danny, like, what any of his, like, lines really meant or anything like that or how they related. And that also, I wouldn't be surprised if that's one of the reasons why he doesn't have very many lines. I think it's that, and it's also... um, if you watch the documentary that Vivian Kubrick did, you hear a lot of the scenes he's, like, yelling at him over a bullhorn, being like, run down the hallway, get into the cabinet. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, so I don't think that he can be talking in some of those scenes because they would have to redub all of it with, like, ADR, which never looks real. Yeah. Um. So I think maybe that's part of it. Apparently for the scary, like, the scary faces that he had to make, or, like, when he was supposed to look afraid, he just made him make a bunch of different expressions where he'd be like, look, happy, look you know, tired, look angry, look scared. And then he would just use the scared ones because he yeah. wanted to just make him feel scared all the time. That's so well done. <laughs> Which I thought that was really funny and kind of cute. There's also this really cute cute part in the uh, onset documentary where they're talking. And she's like, so what do you think about being in this movie? And he goes, well, I've mostly been thinking about what my parents are going to buy me with my money. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, how much money do you think you're making? And he goes, well, at the beginning, I thought I was going to be making like, I don't know, like $2 she goes, so you're definitely making more than that, though, right? And he goes, yeah, I think I'm probably making, like, 500, 600 bucks. And then everyone else starts laughing. And he's like, he doesn't, you could tell that he doesn't know why everyone else is laughing. That's amazing. It's like, oh, it's more than that, huh? It's a lot more than that. <laughs> I also thought it was funny that in that documentary, during those interview scenes, they sit down with um, Scatman Crothers and Shelley Duvall at different points. And Scatman Crothers is, like, full-on nearly crying. And he's like, if you see me crying, it's tears of joy from working with these lovely people. And you're like, I don't believe you on that one. And then Shelley Duvall is like, yeah, I mean, you know, Stanley definitely pushed me hard. And there were times when I really didn't like him. And I didn't think that I agreed with what he was doing. But, you know, he was right. We were trying to do the same thing. And he just had a different method. And I think that he made me a better actor. And it's like, honey it's okay if you don't like him. Like, I know you're talking to his daughter right now, so you probably can't be like, he's a dick. But I just felt so bad for her, especially since obviously she's had a very hard time since then. But like, so we've talked about a lot of the things that have changed, but and obviously it, it depends on, you know, who's making the story. And I think that just, it comes down to the kind of people and the kind of artists that Kubrick and King are. And in general, the difficulties adapting Stephen King in the first place. Because there have been a lot of weird adaptations or slightly different adaptations, some that have gone over better than others. I mean, so his writing style, I think that's just something that's really difficult to yeah. get through. I mean, if you look at Carrie, like, a lot of it is, I guess it's like an epistolary novel to a certain yeah. extent, where it's a lot of notes. It's not necessarily letters, but it is just, like, police reports and yeah, stuff like that Yeah, or articles and yeah. stuff like that, which is, you know, they obviously had to completely redo that. I, I like Carrie a lot as an interpretation. I think that Brian De Palma did a really good job with that. I didn't see the original, but I saw the new one with Chloe Grace Moretz, <laughs> which I enjoyed. The original is great, and Sissy Spacek is the perfect Carrie, because she's, like, pretty, but also super weird looking, so it can kind of balance on that line really easily um but like king's work is super rambly and he goes off on tangents and he sort of inserts random thoughts into places and you know it's there are whole sections of the shining that are just like they're flashbacks but they're just like in parentheses it's just like three pages in parentheses and then you go back to whatever he was already doing well that's what i thought was really interesting like have you um seen the bbc version of jonathan strange and mr norrell no i haven't i haven't um, read the book either okay that is one of the best adaptations i have ever seen of Ooh. a novel period like okay. it is so well done but similar to king she'd have pages of footnotes she'd have like a five page footnote that oh, just like damn. tells a story that you need to have the context of that story to understand their conversation because like oh yeah remember the time the raven king like talked about this thing mm-hmm. like 
and they just continue and not mention what that thing was until she'd have the footnote to say, like, here's this long story that they are referencing. Right. Okay. And it was super cool, but then trying to adapt all that was definitely a struggle, I think. But they yeah. did a really good job. I do think that you would have to do something like a miniseries to get the full everything that Stephen King put in this, but obviously I don't think that Stephen King should necessarily be in charge of that. Yeah. I could see something like a Haunting of Hill House type thing with this. Which I have not yet seen. You should definitely watch it. I, I want to. I'm going to talk a little bit about its connection to this later on, but I promise I won't spoil it for you. Thank you. I won't tell you any important things. Um, Kubrick, on the other hand, is a perfectionist. Yeah. And he's very precise, and he obviously was not going, like we said, for the same tone, and he did a beautiful job of making this, like, stark it's not like a classic gothic horror because like there's no dark corners in anything like everything is super brightly lit it's not it feels very different it feels very he talks a lot about keeping the supernatural elements pretty light only including them when they're necessary and also he thinks that it's scarier he takes sort of a kafka-esque approach to it where if everything else is super normal and mundane then the things that are wrong seem wronger or more wrong i don't think wronger is actually a word um, and he actually mentions how he doesn't like that in a lot of Kafka adaptations for the screen, people go very overboard with making the whole situation look weird and all of the sets look sort of strange and surreal, which I think is funny because he basically did the exact opposite thing with this one, where things are very surreal and weird in the book and he makes them very sort of mundane in the movie. But he still did some really weird, like, did he did some things you don't really notice are completely wrong with the hotel. Yeah. I found an amazing description of oh it my on TV Tropes, actually. So this quote I found from TV Tropes says, like, the layout of the hotel makes no sense whatsoever. Stuart Altman's office has a nice big window in the middle of the building. The Colorado room has multiple floor-to-ceiling windows with a mystery hallway between them. The hotel's interiors have nice right angles while the outside doesn't. The freezer flips sides of the hallway between shots. The spaces between the doorways in room 237's hallway are way too small to actually contain any of the rooms of that size, and this was all done completely deliberately just to add a dramatic effect and add more horror to this because nothing makes sense. You don't necessarily right. notice, you just notice something is wrong here. That's actually something that the only, one of the few interesting points that I got from the documentary Room 237, which is mostly insane, and we will touch on that in a second, um, but one of the guys laid out that, like, if you watch where Danny is going and you pay attention to where things connect in previous scenes when they're, like, taking the tour, it's impossible for him to be going those places on his trek. Like, it's that he is, at one point, he starts in the Colorado Lounge on the bottom floor, and then by the time he's t- taken a couple of turns, you can see that he is on the second floor somehow, even though you followed him the whole way around there. And then at another point, there's, like, he is riding his bike around, and then all of a sudden, um, he turns into where he should be going, um, or he's leaving the kitchen, and he should be going out into an area that you've already seen, because you've already seen the, the kitchen tour, but instead he goes up onto something that's in the second floor. And it gets more and more exaggerated, like, there's three different bike riding scenes, right? And it gets more exaggerated each time. Yeah. So it's more like, as things are getting weirder in the hotel his paths don't make any sense and it's intentionally jumbling you up. And it's really well done. Like you don't yeah. necessarily notice it unless you look for it, but you do know that like you never get a sense of where anything is at all in this hotel. And right. it is very maze-like. Yeah. And you just realize that it just never feels familiar. Yeah. And I'm curious if like even for the characters it wasn't supposed to ever feel familiar. One thing that I, I did read is that apparently right from the beginning, um, Jack seems to have an understanding of where things are. That's true. Like, when he's walking around, he seems to kind of instinctively know about things, so it's almost like the hotel has kind of gotten him already. 
Whereas for anybody else, it would be super confusing and really weird. Or maybe yeah. it's just setting him in the right direction. You know, it's kind of moving around to suit him or whatever. So we mentioned Room 237, and I mentioned this last week when we told your last episode, when we told you guys that this was going to be the episode for this week. Um, I rewatched it. I had only watched a portion of it before, and I think I got the most sane section because I think I got the Danny on the bike section before. Uh, it's super fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I think that if you watch it uh, with the concept in mind that it's really just like watching a movie about people who are obsessed with something and not like trying to get information out of it about the shining i think that it, it works a little bit better because a lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense um but there are a lot of theories about this movie and about what it means yeah so there are a couple that i think are super fascinating all um, right one of them is again the idea that this movie is all about native american genocide yeah which there are a lot of choices to include things about native americans that were not necessarily in the book mm -hmm. so like they go into the detail about the fact they had to like fight off native americans in order to prevent them from like attacking where they were when they were building the hotel right because they were building on top of this um burial ground also there's like a lot of visuals there are parts of the rug and stuff like that that have like navajo symbology and there's like a tapestry that jack nicholson when he's throwing his ball is usually throwing it against this native american tapestry yeah it's interesting because it's like maybe that's intentional or maybe they're just trying to be true to what a hotel in the 80s in Colorado would have looked like which like that's an area that had a lot of Native they American people They also had like before, so. some sort of cans of something oh, that had yeah, a the calumet. Yeah. So <laughs> this is like one of the earliest points in the in the documentary this guy's talking about the first time he saw it and he's like and then I got in the car and I was talking to my friends and I was like guys that movie's about the Native American genocide and Tim and I are like what are you talking about? <laughs> when he talks about how like in the background behind uh, Halloran, when he's first doing the like the tour of the cabinet, you can see these calumet baking powder uh, signs, and a calumet is a peace pipe. And then there's a picture of like a Native American guy on it, and like you see a bunch of them later behind Jack Nicholson when he's freaking out. And like therefore, like that's where he started. He was like, so I knew it was about Native Americans. I'm like, dude. <laughs> I did see a really interesting thing because um, I read an article that basically made the same points mm -hmm. that were made in the documentary, even though I didn't watch the documentary. And it also talks about how it's about people fighting their families because all of mankind is a family. And so when, like, the white men killed Native Americans, it was brother against brother. And how that is – and the fact that this is Jack killing his family means that it's about that. There are a couple of things like, okay, I get that. And there are a couple of things that's like, this seems like a stretch. Oh, my God. In the documentary, there's this point where he's talking about Watson's character, who's, like, one of the other guys who works there who is first introduced to him. And he has a bigger part in the book. He, like, shows him the boiler, which becomes a huge plot point in the book. Um, and he's like, and if you look at him, he looks like he might be, you know, Native American. Like, his actor looks like he's a little, like, darker skinned and has darker complexion. I'm like, what the are you talking about your your whole theory can't be based around that guy looks like he might be partially native american like that doesn't make any oh sense God. at all um the next favorite conspiracy theory of mine or not conspiracy theory but i guess interpretation of the movie mm -hmm. is that the entire thing is a revenge plot by danny and that he has actually set up all of this specifically to get back at Jack and drives him crazy because he knows that if he is able to drive him crazy that he will end up dying and they will be safe. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what are the points on that? That is one I'm not familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of them was like his fascination with his mother because all psychopaths are really weirdly attached to their mother. Well, his dad's a dick, so <laughs> what are his options? Um, one of them's like the fact that he doesn't talk. 
Um, the theory is that he's like a lot more powerful than he lets on in the movie. The idea that he has um, motive, means, and opportunity to do it all in this. Okay. The theory with this one is that Danny was actually the one to let Jack out of the pantry as well. I mean, that is the only non-supernatural response to that would like solution to that problem would be that he would have had to have let him out. So I guess if you're looking at it from that angle, that's a good point. I guess there's the fact that all these supernatural things like the ghosts never physically interact with anything else. True. Unless you count like Danny's neck where like yeah. the old lady attacked him, but also he could have, he would have done that to himself in right. theory. Interesting. And so, yeah, all of it is um, he like, he's projecting images into Jack's head and causing him to go crazy to get revenge on him because of the abuse that him and his mother have suffered at Jack's hand. Interesting. So that was a really interesting theory that That's I enjoyed. That's a cool one. Yeah. Um, I like the theory that it is a confession to having helped fake the moon landing. Yeah, I like that one a lot. I think it's really funny. I skimmed, if you can skim a documentary, I was not paying attention for a lot of it because it just gets super fucking crazy at one point. I know at some point, like, the kid is wearing an Apollo yeah. moon, like, an Apollo 11 sweater. <laughs> and he, oh, and he talks about, uh, the guy said that since he talks to his wife about, don't you understand my responsibilities... Like, I signed a contract. Doesn't that mean anything to you? That's him being like, my family didn't understand when I faked the moon landing and I explained it to them later. It's it's all very, oh my God. And the whole time in the documentary, the guy's like, I'm not saying we didn't go to the moon. I'm just saying that the stuff that we saw was fake, which is a weird one because it's like, why wouldn't you just take pictures on the moon then? I don't understand. If you think, if you think that we went there... I don't know. It makes no sense. It really doesn't. But they think that um, 2001 A Space Odyssey was like, a cover for the technology that they needed to fake the moon landing oh or something god. like that. Um, oh god, what else? It's like it reminds me of this game that I've been seeing like circulating around on Facebook right now, where um, it's a game called Think About It, mm. and you have to take you have to give someone two things, and their job is to create a conspiracy theory connecting these two things. <laughs> This does feel like that. Like somebody was like, the moon landing and the shining. Think about it. And then someone was like, I'll do that. Here's what it is. <laughs> um, oh, there's there's this one guy who in the movie, I swear to God, in the documentary is just stoned off of his fucking gourd the entire time. Uh, at one point he like stops to let his like to tell his kid to go play in another room, which they did not cut. I don't know why. But he's just saying random shit. Like, for most of them. But at one point, he's like, this is a movie that you're supposed to watch backwards and forwards. And, like, if you overlay, if you play it backwards and then project it again over that, but you're playing it forwards, then all these moments line up really cleverly. And he, like, refers to something as a joke, which is just, like, two things overlap in a vaguely interesting way, which is not what a joke is. He keeps calling things jokes that are just coincidences. Um, and he's like, yeah, you can see well, that, like... I would be surprised if, like, exactly 15 minutes into the movie something happens and exactly 15 minutes before the end yeah. something happens, too, because Kubrick was such a perfectionist... That's the thing. ...that he probably did do that on I purpose to a certain extent. I think it's very symmetrical narratively. Because he was obsessed with symmetry. Yeah, and I also think that the shots are set up in a very symmetrical way in a lot of times, which leads to, like, a big Wendy with a little tiny Danny inside of her head or something like that, because... That's just how those shots are set. Because he, like, he uses the rule of thirds really carefully. Yeah. And he, like, he really pays attention to how everything is constructed. And he's a beautiful cinematographer. Or, like, he's beautiful in terms of, you know, deciding what the cinematography is going to be. I don't think that that means that it was intended to be watched backwards and forwards. No. But speaking of cinematography, why don't we talk a little bit about oh, the influences this movie had on horror. Okay. 
Um, and just, honestly, the film genre in general. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh, I also do want to say before we part on the theories that Kubrick himself felt that if you looked too deeply into a, a supernatural movie, that was a waste of your time because you the point of a supernatural movie um, was that you shouldn't look too deeply at it and you shouldn't try to analyze the reasons. Um, I think that people are mostly doing it because they know that Kubrick was a very smart guy and that he was a very intentional filmmaker and that if they can find the secret things that he hid, then they're also very smart and they're on his level. Yeah. Like when I used to read the Harry Potter books with my brother and I would be like, do you think that the fact that she named this character this thing means that this thing's going to happen later? And it never did. You mean like Wolfie McWolferson <laughs> turning out to be a werewolf? Well, it's like those things are really obvious, but it's like when you've, when you're waiting two years for the next book to come out and you're just like every little detail, you're like, well, this character's name means this thing. So obviously they're going to become huge later on. Well, I mean, like we were able to figure out R.A.B. pretty quickly. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Honestly, MuggleNet spoiled it for me. Oh, I wasn't really online that much at that point. I was just making up conspiracy theories with my brother. I like it. But it kind of reminded me of that, where at a certain point you're just grasping for straws. You know? yeah. <laughs> just because you want there to be more doesn't mean that there is. Um, but yeah, so the shot choices in this are dope. Um, and one of the coolest things about it is, this is not something that we might notice now, but the steady cam shots in this movie are really important. Tell us what a steady cam is for the so, listeners who are not film nerds. If you're not familiar, um, Stanley Kubrick at this point was known for dolly shots, which is where you put the camera on a fixed thing on, on, you know, a, like a pedestal or something that's on like a track and you can shove it along the track and it'll keep the shot smooth. A steady cam is, um, this device that a, the camera operator would wear and it's weighted so that the camera remains steady even as you move around. You don't get the jiggling effect or like the Blair Witch type thing and you can, you know, you have to move carefully, but you can move through the space and you can get that fluid, smooth, steady shot without um, needing to put down tracks or anything like that. And this is really important in the scenes in the maze and the scenes in the, like, on the bike rides. Because there's no way that they could have followed him around on a dolly without showing the tracks. Yeah. So they needed something else. The Steadicam was only invented in 1975. So by 1980, it was still really revolutionary and really new, and a lot of people would not have been familiar with it. People wouldn't have used it in their work extensively. Um, it took training at that point, because like people would not have just been getting training on how to use a steady cam unless they were using it for a purpose. So it was kind of revolutionary, and it was something that people wouldn't have been familiar with. But it kind of gives you those flowy shots around corners, and it allows for these really long... He likes long tracking shots. He thinks that they allow um, actors to kind of experience the full range of emotion within a scene without having to stop and stop stop and start and stop and start over and over again and so that's you know again we're used to it now because a lot of people use it now because it's you know accessible but yeah. at that point in time it really wasn't and so this was cool and revolutionary and sort of mind-blowing and he used it on this very low setting so you're following Danny around at his eye level around this area and it really puts you into that specific mood um which I think is really really cool and really interesting um and then his shot choices in general are kind of structured around what's happening in the scene. If it's a normal scene, he uses those long shots. He'll kind of move the camera around within the scene and sort of let you be in the scene and feel connected to it and kind of get a sense of where everything is and all that stuff. But as soon as the supernatural stuff starts happening, like for instance, in the bike scenes, we have these flowing shots of him just riding around like normal. And then as soon as he sees the Grady sisters, it's short. The camera stops. Yeah, and it goes and back and cuts. forth between multiple yeah. things. So you see face, face the sisters. them, dead, them, yep. you know. You see that reaction, and it's very choppy, and it feels, it doesn't feel natural anymore. It feels like you're being reminded that, like, something else is controlling what you're seeing. Yeah. You know? That's really cool. 
I think that's super, super interesting. I think he's a fascinating filmmaker in that sense. And again, I think that now we can kind of watch this and not really think about how much those choices would have affected people at the time. Um, and I think that when you come to The Shining as far down the road as we're watching it, uh, you know, it's been almost 40 years. I think it's easy to forget that some of the stuff was super revolutionary when people saw it for the I first mean, time. I mean, even now going back and watching it, it still feels different than what you see. It doesn't yeah. feel like any other city cam shot or any other movie. Like, right. it does feel visually different. Yeah. And there's so many things that he puts into this that are iconic that now we know like everybody knows about red rum and everybody knows about though i was watching this with paul and he was like what's red rum and i was like oh (laughs) just almost everybody knows about red rum i was like you'll just wait and so when the kids started writing it out and a couple of the letters were backwards because we have the r facing both ways Mm -hmm. he's like oh i wonder if the kid's supposed to be dyslexic and then he finishes the word and he's like oh it's murder (laughs) okay i got it and then it's like less than 30 seconds later when you act because then you start screaming and then you see it in the mirror so it's pretty quick after that and so we figured it out like five seconds earlier but as the kids just screaming red rum red rum it's creepy you don't know what that is no and there's a little finger guy that makes it creepier or like the grady sisters or and i feel like the finger guy is also become kind of like a joke in uh yeah in modern tv right now yeah definitely um but there's just all these things that here's johnny the all work and no play makes jack a dull boy i think that it's easy to forget how scary and creepy that shit was because it would have been completely unfamiliar and now when you see it you're like okay i've seen this reference so many times that it's not revolutionary it's not original right it doesn't take you by surprise when you see the pages full of all work and no play makes jack a dull boy because in the movie you're like oh fuck i thought he was writing stuff but if you come to it now you're like all right he's just writing nonsense i know that because i've heard that saying before you know yeah um but it, it has been super super influential um one of the, the articles that I read described its general vibe as atonal moody brilliance, which I think is a really Sounds good way of explaining right. yeah. it. Um, like, like we talked about, I think there's a tone to it that a lot of people have tried to emulate. Atone? No. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that that, you know, that's distinct. Uh, Lynch has, uh, David Lynch mentioned that it was kind of an inspiration for him with Twin Peaks, which has kind of a similar feeling where, like, a lot of the stuff is lit in a very normal way. Obviously, there are scenes that are much more surreal, but, like... I haven't seen Twin Peaks. I haven't watched all of it, but... I was named after a character from Twin Peaks. Really? Yep. Um, the girl who dies, Laura. Oh. Her cousin, who is played by the same actress with a different hair color, is named Maddie. Oh, nice. And I am named after her. I'm going to guess that was your mom's decision. Um, they went to go see it together, and they both agreed that it was. I think they went to go see the movie in theaters uh, or something okay. like that. You know, Wikipedia says, like, the movie came out in 1992, and I was born in 1991. I don't know if my parents just got really confused, but <laughs> I was named after a character in Twin Peaks. Cool. Maybe it was after a episode mm. and not after the movie, and they just got confused when they told me the story. That would make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, th- there's sort of that same combination of really surreal things that are going on, but then, like, it's just, like, a nice town where people go and eat pie and drink coffee and stuff like that as well. Like, they're all those very normal elements worked in. Um, I felt like The Haunting of Hill House, which you mentioned you have not seen. I'm sure a lot of people listening have seen. Some have not, so I'm not going to give any spoilers. Um, but it's also about a house that has an effect on the people who live in it. And there is a parent who is more affected than any of the others. And there's kids who are very open to certain aspects of the supernatural and that affects them in certain ways as well, which I actually think is really interesting because, um, Stephen King apparently mentioned that 
uh, Shirley Jackson's book, The Haunting of Hill House, was an inspiration for him to write The Shining. And then that movie probably inspired the television adaptation of it. So it's in just a way, I mean, again, it's circular much more, inspiration. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because like there are a lot of like there's one movie in, or one episode in particular where a lot of crazy stuff starts to happen. And there are a lot of very long shots like that where you don't cut and you don't break away and you do get to see kind of the full scenes run through in a sort of Kubricky way. Um, but also the book and the TV series are very different. It is a super loose adaptation um, and a lot of stuff has changed. So I think it's very funny that like those two are kind of in line with each other in several ways where they're inspirations on each other. And also they have a similar relationship between the source material that and like, the popular version. Yeah. King, as we said, did hate this and he actually ended up creating his entire own miniseries of The Shining. Yeah, it was on ABC. Yeah, it wasn't very good from my understanding. I, I saw like an hour of it, like I said, um, but I was very young, so I didn't really understand the difference between good movies and bad movies. Like, yeah. I really loved the Spice Girls movie in theaters, which <laughs> just shows you um, my taste. But my favorite fun fact about this, so like, and Stephen King was very vocal about how much he didn't like it. Oh, yeah. In order to get the rights to remake this movie... He had to stop saying that he didn't like the movie, and the only complaint he was allowed to make was the fact that Jack Nicholson played the character insane from the beginning. He's like, I didn't like this choice. Yeah, which I don't think that's the extent of his feelings about The Shining. (laughs) No, but he just had to stop shitting on Kubrick. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and like we said, there's a lot of characterization that changes, and the whole black guy dies first is a bit of a thing that shows up in the movie but not in the book but the book is still kind of flawed in its portrayal of Halloran to be honest with you yeah and Stephen King has a habit of doing this and I do think Stephen King's a really good writer I don't think it's a conscious choice that he makes no I don't think it is either um but there is a trope that exists in movies not just horror because like for example this happens in the green mile which is a non-horror book that Stephen (laughs) King had written yeah yeah but where like a nice black man sacrifices himself in order to save, like, a white family yeah, or a, a white person. they have some sort of supernatural power, like John Coffey in The Green Mile. Or that, um, Bagger Vance, yep. when he shows up and, like, horrible things are happening to people of color in these days, but he's just really concerned about this guy's golf swing. Yeah, or, yeah, or in this one, he, you know, um, Halloran has this supernatural power, and I don't want to say that Halloran on his own is necessarily a problematic character because he's really not. I mean, he's, he's not. a good intention guy. He has this and in the unnatural book, he has like a kid. really good characterization. And yeah. I do think that's something. A lot of times in these and with this specific trope, these characters aren't necessarily given that great of backstories and stuff like that. And you don't yeah. get to know them. You just know they're like they're like a magical black person who shows up and saves the day. Right. And um, Stephen King doesn't do that in the sense like they all do have like good stories, but the fact that these characters exist in the context of this being a very common trope. Also, there are no other black characters in also this that. movie or in this book. You know, if if the family was also black or if like some of the other people were like if there if it wasn't just all white people except for Dick Halloran. Yep. It wouldn't be like this is the only way that Stephen King portrays black characters, but it kind of comes across that way because it shows up over and, and over and over again. And there are other characters um, in other books. Yeah. But, like, this is something that happens in The Stand. Mm-hmm. This is something that happens in The Green Mile. Mm-hmm. It's something that happens in The Talisman. It's something right. that happens in The Shining. Yeah. Um, and there are other books, like I said, where that doesn't happen. They're right. really interesting characters. Yeah, um, and there's, like, Mike in, in uh, It is a character who, you he's know, really inter- he's doesn't great. He's fall like into character. that trope. Yeah. But it's something that... I think it would be, yeah, I think it would be foolhardy not to point out that, like, it does really come across that yeah. way. And in the book, I, I think that they also explore it a little bit further because he actually has the thought of, like, 
why do I have to be the one who has to trek all the way up there? And why do I have to, like, why is it my responsibility to go, like, save this white family from, like, whatever they've gotten themselves into? Yeah. um... And the only reason that it is is because they have this psychic connection. But again, from a more outward perspective, he only is in that situation because Stephen King wrote him into that situation. (laughs) Like, you know, there's not some force of nature that made him write Dick Halloran that way in the book or anything like that and I yeah it definitely I think it's exacerbated in the movie by the fact that they kill him as soon as he gets up there so it's like his whole I think it's worse in the movie honestly yeah Yeah. um well it is in a waste because he does save them through his sacrifice because he brings up the new snow down and he brings up the new snow cat and he distracts him for long enough that they can get out but Yeah. yeah at least he gets to live in the book at least he gets to live in the book um so speaking of the book and also the movie I guess the conversation I want to finish this episode up with is, is this a bad movie or a bad adaptation? I think it's a bad adaptation. Yeah, I agree. Because I do think that if you take away the source material completely, if you don't ever have any source material, and this is an original movie, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And it is still a very good movie. It is. Like, Stanley Kubrick did a lot of really good things. Yeah. But it is not a good adaptation of Stephen King's work. No. I've had this conversation a lot surrounding Harry Potter because I talk about Harry Potter way too much. Mm-hmm. Or just the right amount, actually, I'll say. <laughs> um, but the fourth movie mm-hmm. and the fourth book. Yeah. The fourth movie of Harry Potter is the worst adaptation out of the entire batch. It's the second longest book at 734 pages, which I know off the top of my head because I'm really you do. cool. Um, but it's like one of the shortest movies. Right. And it just like skips a lot of stuff and all of a sudden like oh we're at the quidditch world cup up oh, we're at this thing up oh, we're here and like all the things that make the book interesting are just completely cut out but if you watch it never having read a harry potter book before and like i read that book more than i read any other so i'll never mm-hmm. be able to look at it through this lens like i'm told that it actually reads really well as an action-packed movie and i think that on the other side it is definitely possible to be a good ad- adaptation and not a very good movie 100 percent. like and for example the johnny the depp um oh I was going to say the Johnny Depp, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, mm. which might be one that people have seen maybe more than the miniseries, but um, Stephen King. Uh, yeah, I was going to say Stephen King's Shining. miniseries yeah. is like very, very faithful, but it's just a horrific miniseries from what I understand. But also yeah. I just heard it's because the acting's really bad, not yeah. because necessarily, and like there isn't the best CGI and stuff like that. It isn't necessarily like the script that's the problem. It's more of just the execution. Right. And I think that in a lot of ways, there's there's times where you make you take liberties and they make it better. And if you're afraid to take liberties, sometimes it's not going to translate right. Like, yeah. like, you know, Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance is a terrifying, great performance. Like, I think that shows up a lot. Like, just because something's a good movie doesn't mean it's going to be a good adaptation. Just because something's a good adaptation doesn't mean it's going to be a good movie. Yeah. And um, I think that it's... I wish I had not... I wish I'd seen the movie before I read the book, because I think I really would have liked The Shining. See, I haven't read it, and I've seen the movie a couple of times now, yeah. so I like the movie, um, but I'm really excited to read the book. I think yeah. I'm going to make it one of my Christmas reads. You should. I think, in general, I tend to be a person who really likes to have as much detail about every single thing that's going on as possible, um, so I tend to like the books more than the movies. I usually will read a book before the movie comes out, or before I see the movie. I think it might be almost a better system to always watch the movie before you read the book. Probably. Because a lot of times, the movies fall short by comparison but maybe if you haven't read the book you'll enjoy them and then you can enjoy the book as a separate thing afterwards that's a good point i yeah. as a as a kid i was always insistent on reading the book first because like i yeah. didn't know it existed originally mm-hmm. but i think it's a good rule yeah watch the movie first read it later you'll experience less disappointment in life that but way but definitely ingest them both and definitely read the shining and definitely watch the shining and definitely skip the 1997 miniseries <laughs>
And on that note. Yeah. So, all right. So that is it on that one. Um, as you could tell, we have a lot of feelings about this. I, in particular, have a lot of feelings about this. I think it's a good movie. I also celebrated it being the Christmas season while decorating my Christmas tree while watching this movie. It's very snowy. I'd seen it a couple times before, so it's yeah. not... I didn't miss too much. Right. But it just felt like very festive and snowy and the closest we're going to get to snow in California. Definitely. But we are keeping it seasonal with our next movie. We are. We are going to go for a spooky Christmas classic. Yeah. We're going to watch Silent Night, Deadly Night. I have never seen it. I, I haven't either. I don't know what it's about other than the fact that it has a Christmassy title. The next time we talk to all you listeners, we will know a lot more about that movie. We will. Um, so in the meantime, check that out. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Sat14thPod. You can follow us on Instagram at SaturdayThe14thPod. That's 14th14. Um, you can go to our website, which is SaturdayThe14thPodcast.com. Um, feel free to, uh, like this podcast, subscribe to it. You can't like a podcast. That's not how the podcast apps work, but please subscribe. Um, leave a review if you like it. Tell your friends about it if you enjoy it. Um, complain to your friends about it if you don't. Do whatever you want. And in the meantime, we will, uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, have a lovely December. And drive safe on those slippery roads. Mwah! <laughs>